Engaging Leader Podcast, Episode 107, Four Seconds, Quick and Counterintuitive Ways to Get the Results You Want, featuring Peter Bregman. Leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. The things you and your team want most peace of mind, fulfilling relationships, doing well at work. Those are surprisingly straightforward to achieve. But habits and behaviors often trip up our best results. Today, Peter Bregman is going to help us learn quick, counterintuitive actions that save time, boost energy, and increase productivity to get the results you want. You know, four seconds can help leaders and organizations make intentional choices that lead to better outcomes, and Peter Bregman is going to show us how to do that. Peter began his career teaching leadership on wilderness and mountaineering expeditions, and then moved into the consulting field with The Hay Group and Accenture before starting Bregman Partners in 1998. His new book is Four Seconds, All the Time You Need to Stop Counterproductive Habits and Get the Results You Want. His previous book was the Wall Street Journal bestseller, 18 Minutes, Find your focus, master distraction, and get the right things done. That book was named the best business book of the year on NPR, and it was selected by Publishers Weekly and the New York Post as a top 10 business book. Peter Bregman, welcome to Engaging Leader. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. Peter, your previous bestseller, 18 Minutes, was about how to focus on the right things. What's the thrust of Four Seconds? You know, four seconds is really what to do with that focus. So, you know, if 18 minutes, I was focused on helping you structure your days and your weeks and, you know, your time around the things that are most important to you, we still need to use those buckets of time really effectively and productively. And how we relate to each other, how we think, how we connect with people at work, how we lead, that's all very much a part of you know, how to be productive. So it's not just about managing our days, but it's you know, how we act during those days that really determines our success. That makes sense. Uh, and as I was reading the book, I was feeling like, unlike a lot of books where they're suggesting extra things to do to maybe make you more productive. A lot of times I was thinking, this was just, he's just telling me a way that's going to feel like I'm uh, paddling downstream instead of trying to paddle upstream. Or maybe a better metaphor is uh, 18 minutes maybe helped me pick the right path and four seconds is going to help make sure that I'm, when I'm on the right path, now that I'm on the right path, I'm strolling downhill instead of trying to climb uphill. I love it. I love it. And if you, you know, if you're really thinking in terms of a stream, uh, you know, let's let's extend the metaphor. But I love that metaphor, which is that you could pick the right river to paddle down, mm. but there's a ton of rapids in that river, and you've got to navigate the river that you're going through in order to really get safely to the bottom to have fun. And and yeah, I don't want to add a ton of things to people's to-do list. What I really want to do 
is to give you things you could do in the time you were going to spend on this anyway, but help that time be hyperproductive. So, you know, how do we stop ourselves from getting into arguments that are completely unnecessary and derail us and actually leave us disconnected and our goals farther from where we wanted them? How do we um, have our mindset that allows us to produce more as opposed to kind of really trying to get everything perfect and not get anything done? How do we um, operate with others at work in a way that helps to support the growth of the organization and the ultimate outcome we're all going for as opposed to kind of politics that derail me? So it's it's really about saying, you know, not how do we spend more time on things, but how do we use the time we have to be uh, much more effective? Well, speaking of time, explain the title for us. Why four seconds? So four seconds is the amount of time it takes to take a deep breath. And what I want to do is I want to interrupt our normal patterned responses, right? That's the goal. I want to interrupt those responses. And so we need something to interrupt the responses. What happens in a lot of situations, and this is the brain science behind it, is you have a stimulus that comes. Someone yells at you in the hall, and that stimulus hits your amygdala. Your amygdala is your limbic brain. It's the emotional response part of the brain. It's the earliest reptilian brain, right? So this is the part that goes fight, flight, or freeze. And someone yells at me, and I just see a saber-toothed tiger, and I yell back. And it's this reactive place from which we, we act. And what I want to do is I want to slow that down. So what we really want to do is allow enough time for that stimulus to go through and past the amygdala and to reach the prefrontal cortex. That's the part of your brain that thinks. So if your prefrontal cortex is, is, is responding, then you're going to have more thoughtful, uh, logical, uh, outcome-focused responses. So we want to give enough time. And I spoke with a neuroscientist, a guy named Josh, uh, Dr. Josh Gordon, who's a professor at Columbia, to ask him, like, how does all this brain science work? And how much, how much time does it take to give your prefrontal cortex, right, the thinking part of your brain, time to gain cognitive control over your amygdala? Because that's the game. The game is we're trying to gain cognitive control over the amygdala to prevent our amygdala from yelling back. And he said one to two seconds. Takes about one to two seconds. So I felt super generous when I was writing this book. <laughs> and I decided to double that. And that's why it's four seconds. You're so kind. <laughs> <laughs> so four seconds, the amount of time it takes to take a, a deep breath in and out is more than enough time to switch ourselves from the reactive brain and put us into thinking brain mode and thereby interrupt sort of that the knee-jerk responses and take more of an intentional response to a given situation. Exactly. Perfect hmm. said. One of the very early in the book tips that you provide is about how to over build the muscles within us to overcome the urge or temptation to distractions. And I, I had never heard of this before, um, that being an important thing for all of us, but especially leaders to do, to be able to resist distractions and stay focused on what's important. Can you share, uh, share with us how we go about doing that? Yeah, so I'm a big fan of meditation. And, you know, what meditation, meditation is as simple as it could be, right? You sit and you breathe. That's it. You got it covered. And if you really want to do it so that you're settled, set a timer. That's how I do it. So I sit, 
I set a timer for 20 minutes for me. You could do it for a minute or 10 minutes or whatever you want. And then you breathe and you don't move uh, until the timer goes off. So that's all it is. And there's a tremendous amount of benefits that you get from, from meditation in terms of your health and wellness and your calm mind and all this stuff. But the thing that's not really talked about that I think is one of the biggest advantages of meditation is building this muscle, right? Building your capacity to resist urges. And here's how it works. It's actually quite simple. I sit down to meditate. And when I'm sitting down and I'm meditating, I relax my mind. And when I relax my mind and I go into this sort of somewhat unfocused time and I'm not reading anything, I'm not looking at anything, I'm not producing anything, I get a great idea. This always happens. So I get a great idea. And then I think, oh my God, this is the best idea. This is the best idea ever that anyone has <laughs> ever had, right? And uh -huh. I've got to write this down. And if I don't write this down, I'm going to forget it. And this is my golden egg. Like this is the thing that's going to actually change the world. And I, and I sit there and, and I don't do anything because I can't do anything, because I made this agreement with myself that I'm not going to write it down. Or I hear my kids screaming in the other room, and I think, oh my God, I really got to go help them. I got to fix their problem. I gotta... And I don't do anything, because I'm not allowed to, because my, my deal with myself is I'm going to sit. And all of that time, I'm getting urge after urge after urge, and I'm resisting every single one of those urges, because I've made this deal with myself to just sit. And then, when I'm in a conversation with someone, and I disagree with them, and every fiber of my being wants to argue with them, because I really want to make a point that I disagree with them, I'm then able to take a breath, have this moment of awareness, and then resist the urge to argue with them, because I know that's not going to help. I know that arguing only makes the other person more intransigent, more settled into their own perspective. So at that point, I can use the skill that I've developed in meditation to pause and resist the urge. And then, you know, the book is filled with these replacement behaviors. So I could say, huh, I don't want to argue with them, but I do want to be in this conversation with them. So how about listening and asking questions? And it turns out that if what you really want to do is change someone's perspective, you're much better off you're much more likely to change their perspective if you listen to them than you are if you argue with them. And it's completely counterintuitive because you would think, I'm going to change their perspective by telling them what their perspective should be. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't work that way. So it's, it's a counterintuitive approach. Listen, and it's super productive because you're in relationship with them, and you're much more likely to soften their stance and have a real conversation with them that may get them to see your point of view if they feel heard and listened to. So it's, you know, it's almost like a three-pronged approach. You take a deep breath. You have that moment of awareness. You resist the urge to respond in your intuitive but probably counterproductive way. And then you choose a replacement behavior that's much more likely to get you to where you want to go. Oh, that's fascinating. Now, I have put this to the test for the last three mornings in a row. I set, uh, I set my timer on my iPhone, and I tried this little meditation exercise. So I was, the first morning was Sunday morning, and I, I set my timer for five minutes, and I tried to just focus on breathing and paid attention to my, my deep breath in and out, breathing from the diaphragm, and and then when I, when I had, and as you said, some idea, some great idea, or I, maybe I started thinking about some book I was reading or a movie I'd watched recently, I would notice that thought, and, and then I would force myself to focus back on my breathing. And uh, got to the, I couldn't wait for the five minutes to be up because it was just so, <laughs> so difficult. And, but I, was so I felt proud of myself for not being an ADD kind of person. I could, okay, I could do this for five minutes. 
Now, Monday morning, it was so much harder. I, I set my alarm for six minutes. I thought, hey, I was so good at five. Let me do six. But there's a difference between Sunday mornings and Monday mornings, I guess, yeah. because Monday I had so many more things popping into my head. And I guess it just, I, I had to ask, is it really better to uh, let those thoughts go and keep focusing on the breathing? Um, or should I have had like a, my audio recorder and just get that thought out of my head so that it's captured somewhere? It's seductive, right? It's right. very seductive. <laughs> you want to follow that thought. So, you know, you could follow thoughts for 23 and uh, three quarter hours a day, um, except for when you're sleeping. But in this meditation, my suggestion to you would be not to start to record. Because when you start to record, what happens is you start to move out of your meditation. And now you're, first of all, you're not resisting the urge, you're following it. And if you record that and then you record something else, and soon you're not meditating at all, you're just talking into your recorder. And the game of meditation, if you will, is, is again, to sort of resist that urge. You will not lose that idea. So the other thing that you're doing is you're building confidence in yourself, mm. Right. You're not going to forget. You have a great thought. You're not going to forget it. It'll come back to you. I don't exactly know when it's going to come back to you, but it'll come back to you. And when it does come back to you, you'll probably be in a place or a position to be able to write it down. But for your meditation, you want that to be the unfocused time so other ideas come to you. The other thing you want to do is to see how your mind works. Many of us have minds that work against us, not for us. And to watch your mind work is really useful. But if you start to follow what the mind asks you to do, then you're no longer watching it work. You're really just being controlled by it. So here, you want to also increase your capacity to say to your mind, oh yeah, that's okay. I'll remember it later, but I'm not going to write it down right now. And you know, your mind is going to start to do something. It's going to say, no, 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 no. You're going to forget this. And now you're going to forget this. But you forget a lot of things. And you know, if you don't write this down, like you're going to just continue to be the absent-minded person you are. And rather than, rather than surrender to you know, that, the bait that your mind is giving you, you're able to go, oh, I see what you're doing. And you probably do that in other places in my life too. Like you probably talk me down from things that I want to do. You probably, I'm on a diet and you're probably going, ah, oh, you could just have that one little cookie. Come on. And you know, you're going to do and say things that's going to sabotage what my intentions are. And I want to become well acquainted enough with you, you person in my head, that I can make choices about what I listen to and what I don't listen to and therefore take away a little bit of the power that's controlling me. Wow, I love it. So this little exercise, it could be as short as five minutes or mm -hmm. I think you said you usually do 20 minutes in a morning, Yeah, can uh, not only do all the health benefits that we uh, we frequently hear come from meditation and improving stress, increasing relaxation and improving blood pressure, that sort of stuff, but it, uh, it can help you overcome absent-mindedness, it can improve your self-confidence, and it can increase your capacity to uh, overcome distraction and stay focused on what matters most. Exactly. That, it just seems like that's all very, very important for a leader because we, we all know leaders who, it's all, they're, they're um, ADD, if you will, they're just so unstructured, I guess, and jump from priority to priority, and they feel creative doing so, but then they it's like the whole tail that they're wagging. The whole organization is trying to jump and, and keep up with them, and nobody ever stays focused on anything long enough to make a real difference. 
Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, what we're really doing is giving ourselves the time and the space to focus on one thing at a time. And that allows us when we're in our organization and there's a million things going on, it's, they're just not in our head, they're outside of our head. We have the capacity to find that center, to find the quiet spot in the middle of all of the craziness and f- stay grounded and from that place make decisions that ultimately will help us to succeed and help the organization to succeed. Well, speaking of helping the organization succeed, let's talk about goals and performance. You suggest something that flies in the face of almost all other books, talking about setting goals and how that is so vital to helping an organization be successful. Yeah, so, you know, I don't mean never set a goal, but I think we have to be very cautious about goals because um, goals can really uh, be helpful, but they can really get in our way. And it's because we're so good at focusing on goals. First of all, the whole idea, you know, everybody talks about this research. I, I've heard it a lot, this research that that basically says, you know, uh, a bunch of people, uh, there was a study done in the late 70s, and a bunch of people in the Harvard MBA program, 3% of the graduating students wrote down clear goals. 10 years later, those 3% were worth 10 times the worth of the rest of the class, mm-hmm. right? And you hear that that story bandied about in all sorts of sort of success and it brings, literature. It brings tears to your eyes to, to know what, yeah. what the potential there of just writing your goals down. Exactly. <laughs> Until you look for the actual study and you realize it doesn't exist. And that there, it's a pure urban myth. Like that never happened. That study never happened. Wow. And, and, you know, I don't know, maybe it's true, but nobody knows <laughs> because, you know, nobody's ever studied it. And so it, you have to kind of ask the question, goals at what cost? And, you know, there's some great examples. So, you know, you remember the Ford Pinto, right? I mean, mm-hmm. in the, I don't know how old you are, but I old remember. Enough to it remember the, it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the goal was, you know, build a car under 2,000 pounds for under $2,000. And they made the goal. It was in 1970. They made the goal. Um, and they made the goal by cutting out safety checks that meant in the end that was the car that ignited when it was rear-ended. 53 people died and there were lots more injuries because they achieved that goal. You know, there's another goal. Um, the New York Jets quarterback, Ken O'Brien, was throwing too many interceptions and so he was given what seemed to be a pretty reasonable goal, which is you know throw less interceptions. And for every interception that you throw, we're going to penalize you financially, right? And it worked. It worked because he threw fewer interceptions. And the reason is because he threw fewer passes. And so ultimately, his overall performance suffered while at the same time, he made his goal. And you know, we all know, we all know entrepreneurs who work incredibly hard. They have this they, they start their companies because they want a lifestyle and they want to be connected and they want time with their families. And then they get so, so caught up in the goal of building their companies that they lose the larger reason and purpose for doing that in the first place. And they end up, you know, miserable and overworked and, and you know, with poor relationships. So I think we can be so um, focused in pursuit of our goals, we kind of forget the reason we set the goals in the first place. And I want to remind us of that. And I think that the objectives we're going after have to always be more important than the goals that are supposed to get us there. So goals could actually harm your performance. And so it's helpful to think in terms of objectives instead of goals. 
Yeah, and to think like, what do I really want? What is the outcome I'm looking for? And let's go for that outcome. And the goals might help me on the way to that outcome, but they also might get in my way. And, you know, we don't always see it. So, because the goals are small picture. And, you know, the outcomes we're looking for are usually bigger picture. So, to keep your eye on that becomes very important. Uh, one, one way that's kind of helpful, I think, is because often we goal-oriented people get so fixated on the goals that we forget to enjoy ourselves along the way and that we're you're in this you're probably in your line of work not just to make money but because it somehow fits in with your passions and your wiring and so having an objective i, I guess does seem to make sense we're, we're, this is what we're about this is our purpose um but we we're here to enjoy working together to have fun and, and to do cool stuff together exactly Exactly. And let's stay focused on that because otherwise we might move farther and farther away from that and not even realize it until it's too late. There's another thing in the book that this is related to, I guess, and that's the whole aspect of of performance versus experience. And the so many of us put all of our... We, we recognize the importance of beginning with the end in mind and, and establishing a certain outcome that we're after. Um, but that raises the big risk of, of people being too fixated on what seems to be a success or being too worried about failure and, and not uh, taking the, the learning risks that are necessary. How, how, do you, how can you help us be more um, experienced focused? You know, we take ourselves, I think, far too seriously. And we try to make everything perfect and we try to really be approved of. And we do all of this stuff that leads us to do our best to perform really well. And in some ways, that's a great goal to point out that if we're successful in, we've probably moved away from our sweet spot. Meaning if I perform perfectly well every time, I'm probably not that human in the end, right? I mean, I'm just doing everything right and everything perfect. And it's not even going to be trustworthy. It's going to feel plastic. And so the goal of, you know, performing to perfection is both a myth and a costly one and one that exhausts us and one that distances us from, you know, who we really are. The ability to experience something, to go in and go, all right, you know, I've got this big meeting. Let's see how that goes. I'm really open, you know, and let me see how this feels and that feels. And like it allows us to really stand on our own two feet. Uh, and, you know, I talked about uh, in the book, I talk about my wedding and, you know, the wedding is the quintessential performance. I mean, you're sitting around <laughs> your entire community and they're all watching you get married and you're, you know, and on the one hand, it's this performance because everyone's watching and you want it to go perfectly and you want everything to be right. And on the other hand, you know, it's, it's an experience. It's not a performance. Like you're not trying to perform, you're getting married and you want to really appreciate and love the experience. And anyone who's trying to perform at their own wedding loses the reality of the experience. I mean, we can all, I think, connect with that idea. You know, you get stressed and not everything's perfect and then you're frustrated about that and you haven't performed the way you want to perform. And if you really see it all as an experience, you can relish every single moment of it and you come off more powerfully because you're more relaxed and you're more connected and you're more real. And that's true for any any event like that. I mean, there's sometimes, I guess, when it's really important to perform, like you're a surgeon and you're doing open heart surgery and yes, you better perform. <laughs> but for most of us, it's not about the performance. It's about having a series of experiences and feeling what those are like and being real during them. 
Yeah, I remember you telling the story of your wedding, and you had that advice given to you by the sort of the stand-in minister, saying, right. "Don't think of this as a performance." I, I had similar advice when we got married, and it's now been about—it uh, was just over twenty years ago for my wife and I—and it was some friends of my parents who said, "Hey, our our best advice as you're getting married is um, don't—I forget the exact words, something along the lines of don't think of it as a performance." But I will remember their exact words when they said, "Think of it as as a party that you want to at some point there look around and say this is a really good party." And it seems like so. I was just thinking sometimes it may be helpful when you're trying to define what type of experience you're after is, is get specific about what kind of experience fits right. And most people, when it's their own wedding, they are worried about performing. They're not necessarily worried about having a good time at this great party. And and 20 years from now, that's what you really want to be able to look back on is I had a really enjoyable day at the start of this marriage experience. I think that's a great way to look at it. And I, you know, I, when I think about maybe what I remember most vividly about my wedding is when I started crying in the middle of it, and we, you know, the the cantor found some tissues in his pocket, and I blew my nose, and everybody laughed, and it was sort of the sloppiest, most unperformed <laughs> moment. But it's the thing that, like, I cherish the most, and that stands in my mind. I mean, it was the most real moment in a certain way, and and I think that's powerful. And the one thing I would add to that is, you know, it made me think about it because I love the idea, and I love the idea of saying yes you know, let's look at, let's decide what kind of an experience we want that to be. Let's frame it so we know to take advantage of it. And I think that's good. I think it's also worth questioning, like, can you step into the experience with utter curiosity and not have any expectation? Because still, when you go in with the expectation of this is going to be a really great party, if it's not a really great party, then you've sort of disappointed yourself because you haven't met your own expectation. But if you go in to go, you know what? I've never been married before. I bet I'm going to feel all sorts of amazing, crazy, maybe uncomfortable, maybe fun, glorious, weird things. And I'm going to like see what it all feels like. And I'm going to go in there. And this may be a great party. It might be a great ritual. I might be annoyed with people. I don't know what I'm going to be. So let me go in there with a really open and curious mind and attitude and see what, what, what's waiting for me over the next three hours. You provided a great little tip in the chapter on experience versus performance, uh, and I immediately had to share it with my, my family that I think helps put it in that framing. Tell us about that. It's the, and I say this jokingly to myself all the time, it's kind of asking the question, like, I wonder what it feels like. I wonder what it feels like. Or even to say, huh, so that's what it feels like. Like, that's what it feels like to be at my wedding and cry in the middle of it. Like, that's what it feels like to fail miserably in a conversation with my boss. Like, that's what it feels like, you know? And it's like almost, you can almost joke with yourself about it a little bit. But again, you're expanding your capacity because when you are willing to feel anything, you can do anything. That we ultimately choose not to do things, right? I won't have that difficult conversation with a colleague. You know, I won't take that risk that has the potential of really blowing my business out of the water. I won't uh, have the courage to face ambiguity and keep moving forward. Like those feelings are hard feelings to feel. And so we aren't willing to feel them. And when we aren't willing to feel them, 
we end up limiting our capacity to act. So if I basically am not willing to feel what it's like to be rejected by you, then I probably won't be willing to have a difficult conversation that we need to have. And we'll you know, we'll, we'll tiptoe around it and our relationship will be awkward and we won't be able to get the most out of it and we won't be able to move forward in things we need to move forward on because I don't want to feel what it's going to feel like to bring up something that's going to be uncomfortable. So ultimately, our success as leaders, and when I mean leaders, I don't just mean leaders of billion-dollar corporations. I mean like leaders in our own lives. Like to be leaders, we have to be willing to feel everything. And when we are willing to feel everything, everything. We are free to do anything. And I want us to really have that experience. So we can quit living life as a performance, uh, which, which leads to all sorts of stress and unhappiness and ultimately to mediocre performance by paying more attention to the experience and allowing ourselves to tr- feel what that's like. And, and, and even just saying to yourself, so this is what it feels like to be interviewing a famous book author and not realize I have a next question prepared. Uh, this is what it feels like to suddenly be struck speechless. <laughs> That's great. How does it feel? I love it. It feels very awkward. <laughs> it, it, yet, I bet you survive it. It, it. it takes, you're right, it does take away so much pressure and it helps you to live more in the moment and, and learn from what's happening. Yeah, yeah. I shared that, as I said, I was re- in the middle of that chapter. It's maybe, I don't know, a third or a quarter of the way into the book. And I just had to stop reading and, and go share this with my family. And they immediately thought it was a great I- idea. But then it also set us up to be teasing each other the whole rest of the evening. Oh, so this is what it feels like to be listening to Dad tell us yet again another one of his great <laughs> ideas. <laughs> and I love that because it, it again, it like reduces the tension. It, it brings some humor into it. It, it like, you know, that's the reality. Like, I bet you were very connected in that moment with your family when they were sort of thinking, so this is what it feels like. And you also can increase your awareness of going, huh, I wonder like if they have this experience of me like talking to them all the time. <laughs> about my ideas and, and you know I mean it's it's uh you know you can respond so this is what it feels like to be made fun of by your daughter you know <laughs> you know you could just kind of keep going and, yeah and yeah I but it, it really does open you up to the freedom to fail which is so important if you're ever going to learn anything if you're ever going to stretch if you're ever going to grow uh nobody ever you, you just don't make any meaningful advancement in, in life if you aren't willing to fail sometimes that's, I mean, in my view, that's absolutely true. And, you know, we've got to fail because, and this is something that I write in the book, that failure isn't just an annoying step on the way to success. It's, it is success, right? When you, like, understand failure and you navigate it and you survive it and you move through it, you are learning the tools to succeed. That, you know, it's not, it's not just about success and avoiding failure – it's about the steps to making doing things successfully, which inevitably includes failure. Well, we've been talking to Peter Bregman. The book, again, is Four Seconds, All the Time You Need to Stop Counterproductive Habits and Get the Results You Want. Peter, where can folks uh, get up their hands in this book and find out more about you and about your work? The book should be available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, kind of anywhere you look, uh, hopefully in independent bookstores also. It's, uh, you know, Four Seconds. 
um, my uh, getting in touch with me or more information about the book or you know we run a leadership intensive and we do coaching um, is peterbregman.com peter b r e g m a n.com excellent peter bregman thanks for joining us on engaging leader thanks so much for having me this was really fun all right engagers today we talked about how to use meditation to increase your ability to resist distractions and focus on what really matters Also, why listening, not arguing, is the best strategy for changing someone's mind. Why setting goals can actually harm performance, so focus on objectives instead. And how to stop performing and say, this is what it feels like to start experiencing the moment. And of course, that will immediately improve your performance. Well, we talked about all that, but I've got to tell you, we've only scratched the surface. There's a lot more great tips in the book, so I encourage you to get your hands on four seconds, all the time you need to stop counterproductive habits and get the results you want by Peter Bregman. And we'll provide the information and links that Peter mentioned on our show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website at engagingleader.com forward slash 107, as in episode 107. And while you're on the show notes page, you can engage with us by providing your thoughts or questions in the comments section or by clicking the red send voicemail button. You can also engage with us at facebook.com forward slash engaging leader or on Twitter where I am at Jesse Leahy. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with midsize and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, Rick Terrence, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, you are always communicating and leading Let's make the most of each opportunity to engage the people we care about.